Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather around this terrific book. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the different things that we have been consumed with or worried about during this day, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to your Holy Spirit in this time. We pray that the wonder of what Lewis does in this book in trying to describe the things of your kingdom, that we would learn from that. We pray that you would use this time to draw us more and more into the presence of Christ. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, tonight we are uh, not going to play Name That Tune, and I know y'all are probably sorely disappointed about that, and I'm just going to tell you that it is possible that some of the older people in here might have recognized the tune that I was going to play, but probably none of them would admit that they recognized it, because it was going to be the TV show theme from Planet of the Apes which was not one of the more highbrow television series in the history of this country. Uh, but it has some really sort of weird affinities with what's going on in the last battle. But we had some technical difficulties, but I will attach the link to that to the class email so that if you want to hear the theme from Planet of the Apes, uh, you will be able to do that. So uh, let's start, as usual, by saying our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor, as yourself. And we're going to see that this concept of freedom and misunderstandings of freedom and failures to appreciate freedom, that that is going to be something that runs throughout all of this story. So a couple of words about how to approach this class, especially if you're new, uh, either in person or online or on the live stream or on the podcast. Uh, I'm delighted that you are here. There are a couple of ways you can do this. You can be on the beach. Uh, people who are on the beach don't do anything. They don't read. They may not show up to class, uh, but they sort of think of themselves as being here. And if that's as much as you can do, that's great. Uh, enjoy your drink. Uh, sit on the beach. Look at the pretty sunset. Uh, that's fine. Or you can snorkel, which means that you can go deep on the parts that are interesting to you. Uh, the email that I send out each week that we'll get to in a little bit uh, has a lot of resources in it. And there are many things that you can click through to. There are handouts. There's a class summary. There are music links. There are all sorts of things. And on weeks that you're not really interested in what I'm talking about, you can just hit trash, and it will just go whoop into your little garbage can. But if it's a week where you're really interested, you can go and click on all those things and enjoy them. Or if you're wired like I am, you can scuba dive, which means that you are at heart a nerd and that you're going to explore every little nook and cranny and you're going to learn some things when you click through and you're going to think, oh, I don't know who that person is. I'm going to look that person up. And then you can happily spend the next eight hours, thanks to me, um, for setting you up. But if you are not on the email list, all of that joy will be denied you. So if you're here in person, please sign up on that sheet if you are not getting the class emails. Um, I have to apologize, the class email always goes out on Tuesday afternoon. This week there were technical difficulties with me, uh, not with the computer, and I did not get it out until today, but normally that will come on Tuesdays. Uh, if you are uh, out there in podcast land and are looking to get the class handouts, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, and you can find me right there and send us a message, and I will get you signed up. So thank you for that. 
Um, how to read this book. This is a book where it is okay to read ahead. Not all Lewis books are good to read ahead, but if you want to read ahead in this one, that's great. But I would encourage you, if you do that, to come back and slowly read each chapter. I'm going to see if I can manage to get us through a chapter a week. I'm somewhat optimistic I may be able to do that uh, if I don't get too carried away. So we'll see. But reading this book out loud is a really good way to be able to chew on it. There's a lot of stuff in here that's easy to miss if you're just following the storyline. So a couple of things about this book. Completed in 1953, just after the end of World War II, wonderful illustrations by Pauline Baines, and these three questions about this book. Is it a marvelous capstone work that draws all the children's Narnia stories to a fitting close, or is it a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace, and the glory of heaven? Or is it a parable about following Jesus that is particularly applicable to 21st century America and the importance of the concepts of word and truth? And what I would suggest to you, which is not a surprise to any of you, is that it is all three of those things. And that is part of Lewis's genius, is that he is able to write on these multiple levels. So just a quick review with the bird flying fast and on the bird's eye view. We talked about Lewis and the Inklings last week. Lewis and Tolkien were the heart of that group. Um, Christians who were writers who were uh, in Oxford. And one of the things about the Inklings is there's always been this debate about, well, were they really gathered around Lewis or were they really gathered around Tolkien? And what I would suggest to you is that they were gathered around the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien. And that was what made that fly. And they uh, really spurred one another on to use their gifts and do marvelous creative things. And part of that group effort in mounting a countercultural offensive against the atheism and despair that pervaded Europe right after World War II was to try to live robustly into the idea of beauty, truth, and goodness that are reflected in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Lewis, in a letter to his uh, dear friend, sister Penelope, who we'll talk more about later, she's awesome, uh, he wrote, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance without their knowing it. Now you have to hold on there a minute. Romance does not mean, as I said last week, kissy-kissy romance. Uh, what this means is romantic literature, a story that spends a good yarn. Uh, so the Chronicles of Narnia, written in this very brief period, um, most of the writing done within three years, which is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, the books, very uh, sort of disparate, but with things joining them together, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has been voted the greatest children's story of all time. These things are still hugely, hugely, hugely popular. So main characters that appeared from earlier books, Aslan. Aslan is the great lion, the great king, the creator of Narnia, uh, the one who gives his life on the stone table for Edmund the traitor because he knew that in the deep magic it said, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery gives his life as a substitute for someone else, then the stone table will crack and death itself will work backwards. And Aslan is the great hero of all of these books, and we're going to talk a lot about him. Tyrion is the king of Narnia in this particular book. He's a young man in his 20s. Uh, he's never met Aslan face to face. He's heard of him. He has faith in him, but he's never actually seen him or been in his presence. Eustace Scrub, such a great name, and that one of the great lines of all literature is the opening of uh, the, one of the books in the Chronicles where uh, it starts off, it says, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Uh, such a great one, but he is the most obnoxious, just nasty 10-year-old boy 
the, just the kind that is looking to cause trouble and all of that. And he encounters Aslan and is transformed and becomes one of the heroes in the Narnia stories. Jill Pole, we meet in the opening scene of The Silver Chair. She is a bullied middle school girl. Now, just pause to think about Lewis, a brilliant Oxford professor in the early 1950s, making a bullied middle school girl the protagonist and the hero of a story, that is pretty radical. She also is transformed by Aslan and becomes a hero. So some themes, we're gonna, there are way more than this, but some of the things we're gonna encounter in this book, the importance of faith, the nature of evil, the danger of theological innovation, the essentiality of truth, the danger of deceit, the power of language and the gift of speech, loyalty, the danger of cynicism, worldly power and politics and the danger of corrupt leaders, the reality of heaven, the joy of eternal life, and then there are a whole bunch of linkages with the great divorce and that hideous strength, which we just studied. Uh, so if you were awake during those and not on the beach, uh, you will actually spot these linkages as we read this book. So be on the lookout for that. So this brings us to chapter one, and it is entitled, By Cauldron Pool. I love saying that, by cauldron pool. Uh, always pay attention to Lewis's titles. There's always something going on. So when you hear the word cauldron, what do you think of? A witch. A witch, yes. So when you think about a witch and a cauldron, do you think that she's making um, hot chocolate for little children? No. The witch is making a witch's brew in that cauldron, and it is designed to do something bad, right? So if we are by cauldron pool, we can expect that there may be something bad that is brewing there. And we are going to find out that that is true. And I just have to tell you, you all just cannot appreciate how much restraint I have to exercise. Uh, because I could spend a whole class on these first two sentences, and I'm just not going to do it. So here we go. In the last days of Narnia, far up to the west beyond lantern waste, and close beside the great waterfall, there lived an ape. He was so old that no one could remember when he had first come to live in those parts, and he was the cleverest, ugliest, most wrinkled ape you can imagine. He had a little house built of wood and thatched with leaves up in the fork of a great tree, and his name was Shift. There were very few talking beasts or men or dwarfs or people of any sort in that part of the wood. But Shift had one friend and neighbor who was a donkey called Puzzle. Now I'm gonna just pause here for a minute. Starting a story with your two main characters being an ape and a donkey, that is not self-evident, let's say. So it's just very interesting that that's what Lewis chose to do. And because it is so unusual and not the way children's stories usually start, it probably means that Lewis is up to something. Lewis never does anything by accident. So it is not an accident that the ape and the donkey are the first characters that we meet. So a couple of things about the setting where I would love to go off, but I will not. The last days of Narnia, uh, we are in this beautiful Narnian creation that is described in the book, The Magician's Nephew, uh, which talks about the glorious time when Aslan sang Narnia into creation, sang the stars and the sky and the trees and the hills and all of that. Uh, but that beautiful creation is drawing toward an end. It is the end times, if you will. And so we're in a wood, a wood in the west beyond lantern waste 
near the great waterfall. And if you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the lantern that is uh, planted in Narnia was actually brought into Narnia from a London street when the white witch wanted to beat up on a cab driver and using her superhuman strength, wrenched a lamppost out of the concrete and went to beat this man and right at that moment was transported into Narnia where everything was growing and so when she threw it down, even the lamppost took root and grew up into a lamp that was giving light there. So that's where the lantern came from. The Great Waterfall. If you were not on the beach during the abolition of man, you will remember that the abolition of man starts with this waterfall image. The abolition of man, uh, Lewis thought was probably his most important work. Uh, a lot of scholars in recent years have been saying, pay attention to this work. This work is really important right now. And it starts with the image of a waterfall and the idea that a waterfall in any normal human should be something that calls forth a reaction of wonder and uh, a reaction of being amazed at the beauty of the waterfall. So it's not an accident that there's this great waterfall that's right here. Uh, there are very few talking beasts or men or dwarfs. Now that should be curious because Narnia used to be full of talking beasts and men and dwarfs. So it should beg the question, what has happened to all of them? But we don't know that yet. And then we have the ape named Shift and a donkey named Puzzle. Now this is different from saying an ape named Harry or Curious George or something like that, or a donkey named Nestor or something like that. Um, these are weird names. So you've got some weird animals chosen and given some weird names. So something is going on. And aren't you glad you came to class because we're going to find out about that. So apes and monkeys. We're gonna do a little dive into apes and monkeys in fiction. Uh, monkeys and apes, when they show up in stories, are thought of as being clever. Um, they are also thought of as being mischievous. And you have to remember that in Darwinian theory, apes are considered almost human. Almost, not quite, but like right on the verge. And there's a great line from Mr. Beaver. If you haven't read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is one of the great characters. Uh, he is a salt of the earth kind of beaver uh, who is full of practical wisdom. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he says this, take my advice, when you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. So keep that in mind as we look at this ape in this story. Uh, there's a brilliant essay that I wanted to read you out loud the entire thing, uh, which I'm not going to do, from uh, Catherine Weber, who's a professor at Kenyon College. And the essay is called At Play in the Uncanny Valley. And I just want to read you this little excerpt about monkeys and apes and stories. Even the idea of a monkey in a work of fiction provokes response. The uncanniness of the small humanoid face and little hands, combined with the distinctly non-human size and agility, it's a moment when the reader is on notice that something non-quotidian that is out of the ordinary is happening in these pages. Monkeys or apes in one form or another often appear as powerful agents of change in cherished classic fantasy novels. The sinister winged monkeys deployed by the Wicked Witch of the West are even scarier in the pages of Baum's first Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, that was written in 1900. And if you're ever uh, in St. Philip's uh, office building, don't be alarmed if you hear O-E-O, O-O, because our choir uses that as one of their warm-up exercises. So it does not mean that wicked monkeys are on the loose over there. Uh, but the last battle 
as she says, Lewis's final volume features a despotic ape with the curious name of Shift. Paradigm Shift, Perspective Shift, Shiftless, Shifty. Shift dresses a donkey in a lion's skin to create a counterfeit Aslan, which he uses to mislead the denizens of Narnia to the point of catastrophic destruction. Both Baum and Lewis depended on the uncanniness of these evil creatures to enact the worst kind of human impulses. In Flannery O'Connor's marvelously weird, a good man is hard to find, there is a frisson, a, a sharp feeling of doomy strangeness earlier when the traveling family arrives at Red Sammy's restaurant and there is a gray monkey about a foot high chained to a chinaberry tree. When they go back to their car, there he is again, busy catching fleas on himself and biting each one carefully between his teeth as if it were a delicacy. He has a limited existence and not much agency in the story. He's chained to a tree in a spot where he doesn't really belong at all. And that's it, done with the monkey. But his weird yet muted and unremarked upon presence has been a herald of the strange possibilities that lie ahead. And I think that is exactly what is going on in this story. The ape is gonna be in a lot of places that he should not be, and it is going to cause all sorts of weirdness to result. And there's a whole thing here about order and all that that I'm not going to go into yet. So apes and monkeys have this going on. So there's a great quotation from Lewis's uh, inaugural lecture in Cambridge in 1954 when he became a professor there. It's called De Descriptione Temporum, and it's not in Latin, it just has a Latin title. Uh, and I'm gonna attach that as a handout for those of you who are scuba diving because it is a really important essay that's got a lot of linkages with this book. But in that, he said, once Darwin started monkeying with the ancestry of man and Freud with his soul and the economist with all that is his, man became the business of science. All that makes us truly human is gradually removed. Purpose, freedom, imagination, speech, the idea of Imago Dei being made in the image of God, leaving only trousered apes driven solely by instinct and feelings. And this trousered apes expression shows up again in the abolition of man. And basically what that means is people who have traded in their humanity, they have devolved down to the level of an ape, of a creature, just led by instinct. And then there is, oh dear, a misspelling, uh, Mythopoeia, uh, which is a beautiful and wondrous poem that some of you will remember from way back about five years ago in class that Tolkien wrote for Lewis. Can you imagine having Tolkien write a poem for you? I'm so jealous. Uh, but he wrote this for Lewis in 1931 after they had been on a long walk until three in the morning with Tolkien trying to give Lewis analogies about why he should believe in the Christian faith. And that conversation that night on Addison's Walk in Maudlin College in Oxford led to Lewis's conversion. And Maudlin is a beautiful place. Jane and I walked on Addison's Walk when we were over there this summer. But the whole idea of uh, this poem is recounting the back and forth in their conversation. And in that poem, uh, Tolkien dedicates it to one who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless even though breathed through silver. That was Lewis who said they were lies, but he did a complete 180 on that. And Tolkien calls himself Philomethus, lover of myth, and Lewis, Mesomethus, miserable hater of myth. But in this poem, there is this contrast going on between the materialistic, atheistic, empty, despairing view of the world and humanity and the glorious, beautiful, rich, incredible understanding of the wonder of God's created universe and the ultimate wonder of the summit of creation, men and women made in his image. So there's this back and forth between the, those two points of view. So Tolkien in one place says, I will not walk with your progressive apes 
erect and sapient. Before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, if by God's mercy, progress ever ends. And it's this whole idea that there were a lot of philosophers and thought leaders and politicians during this time period who were saying, man is just an ape. He's just a better dressed ape. Uh, there's no difference between a human and an animal. Uh, we need to live into our instincts and be, be the human animal, all of that kind of stuff. And Tolkien is saying, no, 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 that we are made in the image of God and we need to not lightly discard that. So all of this is going on uh, in the background here. Then we get to donkeys. Now, one of the interesting things about donkeys is that Lewis wrote about donkeys a lot. I mean, almost enough where it's kind of weird. But it's, it's interesting. Uh, they show up in all sorts of places, not just in the Narnia stories, but in some of his more serious writing. Uh, in his great book on the four loves, about the four Greek words for love, uh, he has this sentence. No one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, deserving now the stick and now a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful. There's no living with it till we recognize that one of its functions in our lives is to play the part of the buffoon. So Lewis also has a poem that is all about the virtues of donkeys that is called the ass. And I have not brought that poem, uh, but he basically is just sort of wondering about God making the donkey and all of the different characteristics of it. Lewis, as you know, was a great literary scholar. He was a great scholar of Shakespeare. And any of you who know much Shakespeare will know Midsummer Night's Dream and the character of Bottom, who is bewitched into putting on a donkey's head uh, that he doesn't quite realize that he's wearing, and then trying to woo uh, this girl while he is a donkey. Uh, and he is given the unfortunate name of Bottom uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I will just say I am somewhat triggered whenever I talk about Midsummer Night's Dream because I was in a production of it in high school, and it had the worst miscue of any theatrical production I was ever in. So it was intermission. So everyone was out and milling around in the auditorium, and somehow we had been cued that it was time to start and that the lights were down. Puck, one of the other main characters, jumping out of a trap door in the stage. And so Puck jumped out of the trap door in the stage and started declaiming his lines and realized that all the lights were on and the snack bar was open, and so he had to reopen the trap door and climb back down. It was bad. Fortunately, I was not playing Puck. But Bottom, the donkey, um, right after he has been transformed out of being a donkey, says this, the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen, man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream. It shall be called Bottom's Dream. But the interesting thing about that speech is that it mirrors 1 Corinthians 2, which says, the things which eye hath not seen, neither ear hath heard, neither came into man's heart, are which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So one of the things that you see in that is that the donkey is perceiving some remarkable things. The donkey is perceiving some remarkable things. And that is a theme that we're going to see in this book. Um, also, of course, we have the donkey of the nativity, the one who is bearing Mary to Bethlehem with Jesus incarnate but still in the womb, so carrying Jesus. And then we have the donkey 
carrying Jesus into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry uh, right before his crucifixion. So a place of huge, huge honor. And then we have Balaam's ass. Now, most of us probably were not really deeply schooled in the stories of the Old Testament. We may know that Balaam's ass was a character that we stickered about in the corner in third grade. Uh, but the story of Balaam's ass is actually really significant for this book. So it's in Numbers 22, and I'm just going to read this to you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when Balaam went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. This is God trying to stop Balaam from doing something really stupid and bad. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey, note, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Now, you would think the fact that the donkey just talked to him might have gotten Balaam's attention and made him realize, ooh, I probably like really screwed up here. But he's so mad. Look what he does. He doesn't even say anything about all that. He says, you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So Balaam bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you, because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. So there's a lot going on there. We're not going to unpack all of that, but just keep that in mind. The donkey is the one who sees the spiritual reality of what's going on. So Lewis and names, again, no accidents, shift. Now remember, Lewis is obsessed with philology which is such a fun word to say. Philology is the study of words and how they came to have particular meanings. And Tolkien was actually a professional philologist, which is even more fun to say. Uh, but they were obsessed with language and words and wanting words to have their real meanings. And they loved etymology where words came from. So shift means a slight change in position, direction, or tendency. And it's a word that came into English around 1200, meaning to alter, to make different, to change. And by the 13th century, he had acquired the connotation of substitute one for another, or to make something other than what it was, to cause to turn or pass from one state to another. Just think about what shift does in chapter 1. Then, of course, there's that lovely word, shifty. I hope no one has ever called any of you shifty. If they did, I'm sorry to tell you, it was not a compliment. Shifty means intelligent, but intelligent in deceiving others. Uh, in the 1560s, it meant well able to manage for oneself, fertile in expedience, i.e. always being able to get yourself out of a jam by quick talking. Uh, and it comes from the same word as dodge, trick, or artifice. Uh, 
Now, puzzle is also an interesting word. Uh, it can be a noun or a verb. The noun, something that's difficult to understand or explain, a mystery. The verb, to cause someone to feel confused and slightly worried because they cannot understand something. Now, if you've read the chapter, you will know that that is exactly what the ape does to the donkey. And it comes from the medieval French word that means to bewilder, to confound, or to perplex. So another thing that's going on, are you noticing there's some layers here? Um, another thing that's going on is that the ape is continually described as the most clever and the most crafty. And there are some really interesting parallels going on with Genesis 3 and the temptation story. So remember, we just read this. Shift was so old that no one could remember when he had first come to live in those parts. He was the cleverest, ugliest, most wrinkled ape you can imagine. He had a little house built of wood and thatched with leaves up in the fork of a great tree, and his name was Shift. And then chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Keep that in the back of your mind as we look at the next few chapters. So that brings us to chapter one and some key passages and themes. So one of the things going on here is there is terrible bullying and abuse going on in this chapter where this ape is just horrible to this donkey, but he's couching it all. I mean, it's very cleverly done. Um, and he has designed everything he says to make Puzzle feel stupid and incompetent and useless, while at the same time saying, I'm only looking out for your best interest. So here's a little excerpt. At least they both said they were friends, but from the way things went on, you might have thought Puzzle was more like Schiff's servant than his friend. Puzzle did all the work. When they went together to the river, Shift filled the big skin bottles with water, but it was Puzzle who carried them back. When they wanted anything from the towns further down the river, it was Puzzle who went down with empty panniers on his back and came back with the panniers full and heavy. And all the nicest things Puzzle brought back were eaten by Shift. For as Shift said, you see, Puzzle, I can't eat grass and thistles like you. So it's only fair I should make it up in other ways. And Puzzle always said, of course, Shift, of course, I see that. Puzzle never complained because he knew that Shift was far cleverer than himself, and he thought it was very kind of Shift to be friends with him at all. And if ever Puzzle did try to argue about anything, Shift would always say, now, Puzzle, I understand what needs to be done better than you. You know you're not clever, Puzzle. And Puzzle always said, no, Shift, it's quite true. I'm not clever. Then he would sigh and do whatever Shift had said. And this is so profoundly sad because it's such an example of the way that people often treat each other. And you see in this the way that Shift is manipulating Puzzle and putting him down while pretending to be his friend. So a couple of scripture verses that relate to this from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more than significant than yourselves. Or from Proverbs 10, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be find, found out. Then this passage from 1 Corinthians. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. 
When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. And what Lewis is doing here is he's giving us a foil of how we are not supposed to act like this. We're supposed to be horrified by the way that this relationship is unfolding. But it's a great reminder to us as Christians to not fall into this sort of thing. And then manipulation and temptation just goes on. Uh, They are out there in the woods, and all of a sudden, Shift yells out, look, what's that? What's what, said Puzzle. That yellow thing that's just come down the waterfall, look, there it is again, it's floating. We must find out what it is. Must we, said Puzzle. Of course we must, said Shift. It may be something useful. Just hop into the pool like a good fellow and fish it out. Then we can have a proper look at it. Hop into the pool, said Puzzle, twitching his long ears. Well, how are we to get it if you don't, said the ape. But, but, said Puzzle, wouldn't it be better if you went in? Because you see, it's you who want to know what it is, and I don't much. And you've got hands, you see. You're as good as a man or a dwarf when it comes to catching hold of things. I've only got hoofs. And then I left out the part where Schiff says, okay, I'll go in. You know, I have a weak chest. I'll probably get pneumonia. I'll probably die. But don't feel bad if I die. It's all okay. I'll do it because you don't want to. And so, of course, the donkey is like, no, 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 I don't want you to die. You're my only friend. And so the poor donkey Imagine a donkey trying to retrieve something out of the pool at the bottom of a waterfall. That is not easy. So he goes in and almost kills him. He's careening around in there. He's almost drowning. But finally, when he's almost tired to death and bruised all over and numb with cold, Puzzle succeeded in gripping the thing with his teeth, and out he came carrying it in front of him and getting his front hoofs tangled up in it, for it was as big as a large hearth rug, and it was very heavy and cold and slimy. He flung it down in front of Shift and stood dripping and shivering and trying to get his breath back. But the ape never looked at him or asked him how he felt. The ape was too busy going round and round the thing and spreading it out and patting it and smelling it. Then a wicked gleam came into his eye, and he said, it is a lion's skin. Says some scripture. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to come, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lie, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Now, we can safely say that Shift has never encountered the book of Proverbs. So, a little bit more. Truth and sins of omission, holiness and doing what's right. I wonder who killed the poor lion, said Puzzle presently. It ought to be buried. We must have a funeral. So the donkey's got some good instincts here, understanding about the sacredness of life. Oh, it wasn't a talking lion, said Shift. You needn't bother about that. There are no talking beasts up beyond the falls up in the western wild. This skin must have belonged to a dumb wild lion. This, by the way, was true. A hunter, a man, had killed and skinned the lion somewhere up in the western wild several months before. But that doesn't come into the story. All the same, Shift, said Puzzle, even if the skin only belonged to a dumb wild lion, oughtn't we to give it a decent burial? I mean, aren't all lions rather, well, rather solemn because of you-know-who? Don't you see? Puzzle understands that because this is a lion skin and Aslan is the great lion, that there's something almost sacred 
about this lion skin, and it deserves to be set apart and treated with respect. But shift, don't you start getting ideas into your head, puzzle, said shift, because you know thinking isn't your strong point. We'll make this skin into a fine, warm winter coat for you. Don't you start getting ideas in your head, puzzle, you stupid idiot. Yeah, so bad. And then puzzle. Oh, I don't think I'd like that, said the donkey. It would look, I mean, the other beast might think. That is to say, I shouldn't feel, what are you talking about, said Shift, scratching himself the wrong way up as apes do. I don't think it would be respectful to the great lion, to Aslan himself, if an ass like me went about dressed up in a lion skin, said Puzzle. Well, that pretty much says it all right there. He says, I don't think that would be respectful. I know what I am, and I'm not going to dress up and pretend to be something that I am not. And yet, we'll see what happens. So some more scripture. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So any person who knows what is right to do, but does not do it, to him it is sin. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and then let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Puzzle understands that there's something holy, that there's something special and sacred about Aslan and about lions. Puzzle understands that he needs, despite being put down, to speak the truth about Aslan, even though he knows that Shift is going to make fun of him about it. Notice he keeps bringing it up. Um, which is probably very difficult for him to do. Um, he is aware um, of this whole idea of sins of omission, that if you know what's right and you don't do it, that is sin. But Shift is determined to just put puzzle down. So then we get to secret sin. So he sends puzzle off. As soon as he was alone, Shift went shambling along, sometimes on two paws and sometimes on four, till he reached his own tree. Then he swung himself from branch to branch, chattering and grinning all the time, and went into his little house. He found needle and thread and a big pair of scissors there, for he was a clever ape, and the dwarfs had taught him how to sew. He put the ball of thread, it was very thick stuff, more like cord than thread, into his mouth so his cheek bulged out as if he were sucking a big bit of toffee. He held the needle between his lips and took the scissors in his left paw. Then he came down the tree and shambled across to the lion's skin. He squatted down and got to work. He saw at once that the body of the lion's skin would be too long for puzzle and its neck too short. So he cut a good piece out of the body and used it to make a long collar for puzzle's long neck. Then he cut off the head and sewed the collar in between the head and the shoulders. He put threads on both sides of the skin so it would tie up under Puzzle's chest and stomach. Every now and then a bird would pass overhead, and Shift would stop his work looking up anxiously. He did not want anyone to see what he was doing. But none of the birds he saw were talking birds, so it didn't matter. Now there's a lot going on here, but uh, one of the things that you see is that uh, when people are left alone to their own devices and no one is watching, bad things can happen. It's like that thing your grandmother used to always say of the idle mind is the devil's workshop, or what you see early on in Genesis, it is not good for the man to be alone, uh, it is not good for the woman to be alone, it is not good for us to be left to our own devices and schemes. And what has happened here is that the ape is not remotely interested in trying to keep Puzzle warm. That is not what he is about. What he is about is trying to use Puzzle 
for his own ends. And there's a whole nother thing going on here. Remember what Puzzle's attitude toward the lion skin is. He thinks that it is sacred, that it deserves to be buried. And look at what Shift is doing. He's cutting it all up. He cuts the head off. He cuts this part out. Now, in the midst of all this, Lewis was a very committed anti-vivisectionist who really opposed experimenting on animals, which may uh, have something to do with the vehemence of this. But it is just interesting. So some more scripture. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered to someone behind closed doors will be shouted from the rooftops. And this whole idea of the eye being the lamp of the body, when you start embarking and start calling evil good, all bets are off. Because when the only light within you is darkness, you're just going to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into that darkness. And I want you to just think about how this story started off. There's just a donkey and an ape by a beautiful waterfall and a pool. And we're just going to watch how it just goes in the direction of evil so quickly, which is a good reminder to us. So some passive aggression. None of us have any experience with that. Uh, manipulation, deception, and pride. Come try on your beautiful new lionskin coat, said Shift. Oh, bother that old skin, said Puzzle. I'll try it on in the morning. I'm too tired tonight. You are unkind, Puzzle, said Shift. If you're tired, what do you think I am? All day long, while you've been having a lovely, refreshing walk down the valley. Well, remember, he was sent, Puzzle was sent on this arduous journey through the mountains to go look in the market town for oranges to bring back to shift. This is not a refreshing walk in the valley. While you've been having a lovely, refreshing walk down the valley, I have been working hard to make you a coat. My paws are so tired, I can hardly hold these scissors. And now you won't say thank you, and you won't even look at the coat, and you don't care, and, and... My dear shift, said Puzzle, getting up at once, I'm so sorry. I've been horrid. Of course I'd love to try it on, and it looks simply splendid. Do try it on me at once. Please do. Well, stand still then, said the ape. The skin was very heavy for him to lift, but at the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing and puffing and blowing, he got it onto the donkey. He tied it underneath Puzzle's body and tied the legs to Puzzle's legs and the tail to Puzzle's tail. A good deal of Puzzle's gray nose and face could be seen through the open mouth of the lion's head. No one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close and if the light was not too good and if Puzzle didn't let out a bray and didn't make any noise with his hoofs. You look wonderful, wonderful, said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. That would be dreadful, said Puzzle. No, it wouldn't, said Shift. Everyone would do whatever you told them. But I don't want to tell them anything. But think of the good we could do, said Shift. You'd have me to advise you, you know. I'd think of sensible orders for you to give. And everyone would have to obey us, even the king himself. We would set everything right in Narnia. But isn't everything right already, said Puzzle? What, cried Shift, everything right when there are no oranges or bananas? Well, you know, said Puzzle, there aren't many people. In fact, I don't think there's anyone but yourself who wants those sorts of things. There's sugar, too, said Shift. Hmm. Yes, said the ass, it would be nice if there was more sugar. So there's a lot going on here. And you see, again, this passive-aggressive, 
poor, poor, pitiful me. I've worked my fingers to the bone for you, and you just don't appreciate. You're so bad. I'm so good to you, and what do I ever get? I just don't ever even get a thank you. I just suffer, but that's okay. I won't complain. And so, of course, Puzzle, who actually has a conscience as opposed to shift, feels bad and puts the lion's coat on. But even with that, the instant that shift says, people might even mistake you for Aslan, Puzzle's immediate visceral response is that would be dreadful. That should never happen. And yet, shift automatically goes to, but think of the good we could do. And there's a great quotation that I'm going to butcher here from Lewis, where he says, there's no tyranny in the world worse than the tyranny exercised by someone in power for the supposed good of those little people. And that's very much what he's getting at here. So some more sugar, well, not more sugar, more scripture. But before we get to scripture, the sugar Puzzle is holding the line pretty well until the temptation gets to something that he really likes. And I don't want to say that the scripture is right when it says their God is their stomach, but for some of us that may be true. Uh, but there, there are certain things that if that gets into the equation, all bets about obedience are off. So listen to this scripture. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, sin brings forth death. Then, of course, from the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then we'll wrap up with this one, the danger of false prophets and failing to stand up for the truth. Well then, that's settled, said the ape. You will pretend to be Aslan, and I'll tell you what to say. No, 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 said Puzzle. Don't say such dreadful things. It would be wrong, Shift. I may not be very clever, but I know that much. What would become of us if the real Aslan turned up? I expect he'd be very pleased, said Shift. Probably he sent us the lion skin on purpose so that we could set things to rights. Anyway, he never does turn up, you know, not nowadays. At that moment, there came a great thunderclap right overhead, and the ground trembled with a small earthquake. Both the animals lost their balance and were flung on their faces. There, gasped Puzzle as soon as he had breath to speak. It's a sign. It's a warning. I knew we were doing something dreadfully wicked. Take this wretched skin off me at once. No, no, said the ape, whose mind worked very quickly. It's a sign the other way. I was just going to say to you that if the real Aslan, if you call, as you call him, meant us to go on with this, he would send us a thunderclap and an earth tremor. It was just on the tip of my tongue. Only the sign itself came before I could get the words out. You've got to do it now, Puzzle, and please don't let us have any more arguing. You know you don't understand these things. What could a donkey know about signs? So, some scripture. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So there's a whole thing going on here of falsehood, just terrible falsehood, and then this manipulation of spirituality and signs to try to 
say something is God's will that is clearly not in accord with that. And there's much that can be said about this that I'm not going to say because we are out of time tonight. But the, the important thing to notice here is that shift is basically deciding, I am going to be God. And I am going to exercise this power and I'm going to use it the way that I want to. And Puzzle is trying to stand up against it, but he can't. And then I love that last line, what could a donkey know about signs? Well, you just read Numbers 22 with me. You know that the Bible is very clear right there that a donkey might know way better than you might think. So with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this book. We thank you for um, the terrible example of this ape and the way that he treats this donkey. Lord, we pray that as we read this story, that we would be reminded of the way that you call us to relate to one another as people who are made in your image. Lord, we pray that you would remind us about how evil can start with something so small, but when little compromises are made, great evil can result. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from that, that you would help us to live into the truth of your word, that you would protect us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would be our true guide. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.